It is a joy for me to be up here this morning to finish up this uh, sixth chapter of Galatians. And so if you want to take your Bibles and go, you can actually go first to Acts chapter 15, just to give you a little bit of introduction uh, to the text that we're going to be in today. If this is your first Sunday here, I've been, uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here. My name is Brett Hastings and I am uh, preaching just three weeks. This is the third week, the final week that I'm preaching, and I'm doing a short section on Galatians chapter 6, and this is the final sermon out of that three-sermon series there at the end of Galatians. But it's fitting this morning, before we get into the text, to just get a little bit of a background so we understand to a fuller extent these verses that we're going to be getting into today. In chapter 2, of Acts. You can stay in Acts chapter 15. I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the book of Acts. In chapter 2 of Acts, the Holy Spirit, he descends on believers there, and the miraculous sign of tongues is given at the gospel proclamation of Peter. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on the believers there. And the early church, thousands were added that day, and numbers were being added every day after that. Many of those who were saved, they didn't want to go back to their homes and other places. They were all coming to Jerusalem for the feast, and so they heard the gospel preached, and they wanted to stay there where there was a church, a place where they could learn more about what Christ taught through the apostles. And so the Jerusalem church was born, and then it just ballooned in size very, very quickly. And we see the church at odds with the Jews over a crucified Messiah, and the bodily resurrection. And then we see Saul ravaging the church, persecuting it, which then dispersed the Jews out into the wider world. But during this time of persecution, Peter is sent by God to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter preached the gospel to the Gentiles there. And while he was still preaching the gospel message, it says the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had fallen on the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then Acts chapter 11, it recounts some of the criticism from those Jews against Peter for obeying God in this way to go to the Gentiles. Acts 11, 1-3 says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What do you immediately notice about the circumcision party here? Are they rejoicing in the salvation of Gentiles? No. They are concerned about circumcision. They are concerned for the one thing that they hold dear. Their primary objective, their primary focus was circumcision. But this was a group within the Jerusalem church. Members of this group also had been dispersed throughout the known world. But back to the narrative, Saul is converted and after many years of serving faithfully in Antioch, he and Barnabas, they go out on their first missionary journey. And on this journey, they go through several cities of Galatia, Derbe, Iconium, Lystra, preaching the gospel. It's at Lystra where Paul is stoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross. 
And after being stoned, he gets up and he marches back into the city. And the next day, he continues on his mission to Derby. Paul and Barnabas, they then return to Antioch. That's the church from where they were sent out. And as they were there, they were confronted by some of those of the circumcision party. And so you should be there, Acts 15. I'm going to read verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So right there we see the heart of the circumcision party, a works-based salvation, and particularly the work of circumcision. And this is a great example of a subtle trend coming into a church that's false, but it takes some time for godly leaders to come to grips and a firm stance on it. Because fulfilling the law of Moses was a righteous inclination, the damnable heresy of legalism wasn't immediately obvious to those in the church. And this is why we saw it earlier that I read in chapter 11, but now in 15 it has come to an ugly head. You must be circumcised to be saved. But let's continue on in the passage, Acts chapter 15, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, As you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the state of affairs is the same in Jerusalem. A group of believers there, it says, who are a part of the circumcision party or a part of the Pharisee party, they were saying it was necessary meaning necessary for salvation. And so the first church council was convened to clarify the matter. Let's keep reading in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So Peter clarifies the controversy by stating the fact that God saved the Gentiles who had not been circumcised, that he preached to, and he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he had given to the Jews in Jerusalem. Therefore, Gentiles clearly and obviously don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And moreover, Peter reminds them the salvation is by grace 
It is not by works. It is not earned. It is not merited. And so Peter, voicing his concerns at this council, he puts the nail in the coffin for the Judaizers' theology. It says, and they all fell silent. Look at the section right after this, beginning in verse 12. After Peter makes his remarks, all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, a reference to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, that is troubling them with circumcision, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. From the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they explain the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Which means that the circumcision party is wrong. And from this point forward, the heresy has been declared. It wasn't as clear up until this point, but now it is clear. Now anyone proclaiming circumcision for salvation is in direct contradiction to the apostles. And for many, it wasn't clarified until this point. Until they made an official proclamation with the authority of the apostles, which comes from the authority of Christ himself. So the legalists, they raised their ugly head that day for works-based salvation, but the apostles and the elders cut it off. But just like any chicken that gets its head cut off, it can still run around for a while. And it did. It ran around out into the known world. And it's still around today, a heresy that's still around today. So there was a time when it wasn't clear that this was a heresy, but now there is no question. And that's why Paul later, he wrote to Titus saying in Titus 1, 10 to 11, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul says they're insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They were not submitting to the authority of the apostles. And from the Jerusalem council, Paul's attitude is that this heresy must be silenced because it is a damnable heresy. It leads people to hell. It is based on self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. It is man-focused, not God-focused. So now take your Bibles and go to Galatians. So the theology 
that was denounced by the apostles at the Jerusalem council was not put to death. Rather, it ran out. Perhaps it was already rooted by this time in the churches abroad, but it especially took root in the churches in the region of Galatia. And it is more than likely that when Paul went out on his second missionary journey and passed through those churches in Galatia that he had planted, but it's no doubt as he went on his second missionary journey that he told them of the doctrinal clarity coming out of the Jerusalem council that this was an error. But it's during Paul's long stint at Corinth, after he went through the land of Galatia, he ends up in Corinth, and it's at his long nine-month stint in Corinth that he writes to the churches of Galatia. He writes this letter after he's gotten reports of how this heresy is still ravaging the church. And look at Galatians chapter 1. This is how the letter opens. Paul addresses them in very stern language. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the strongest language from Paul condemning those churches in Galatia who had not submitted to the truths of the gospel clearly articulated by Paul and clarified in the council of Jerusalem by the apostles that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not by circumcision, not by any works. And Paul's goal was to silence these false teachers just as he had told Titus to do. Why? Because they were deceiving people into thinking salvation was by works. So Paul launches into a full-forced attack and defense of sola fide. That is to say, we are justified by faith alone. This is abundantly clear that no works save. Not even the work of circumcision promoted by the circumcision party. And Paul, he In Galatians, he systematically dismantles the legalists' arguments. Just look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul repeats the same refrain all throughout the book. He systematically dismantles the legalist's arguments. But in the conclusion of the book, which is where we're going to be today, he exposes their motives. Why were these false teachers promoting works-based salvation. And Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians with a final appeal for true believers to heed his 
admonition to hold fast to the doctrine of faith alone, that works are not necessary for salvation. But he does so. He encourages us to hold fast to the faith first by unmasking the motives of the false teachers who are promoting circumcision. Then he highlights the centrality of the cross and the gospel message, which is the ground of our faith and our boasting. So in these last verses, we see Paul's final exhortation to gospel faithfulness. And we see that in three points. The first one, sinful motives that encourage gospel deviation. Sinful motives that encourage gospel deviation, that is deviating from the path of the true gospel. Point number two is going to be humble boasts that embolden gospel faithfulness and then peaceful fruit that envelops gospel obedience. But this first one, sinful motives that encourage gospel deviation. So look with me at Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be covering verses 11 through 18 today. All of that's just setting the context. Paul's justified animosity towards these men, these false teachers. Verse 11, Paul starts this final section. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The interpretive issue here is whether Paul wrote the entire letter with his own hand or just the concluding paragraph. And some think Paul wrote the entire letter because he uses a verb tense that would indicate a completed action, that he had written the letter with large letters in his own hand. The actual verb tense is not present as it's interpreted in the English, but some people believe Paul uses this tense in the Greek to indicate that he's writing from the perspective of the listeners. That as they get the letter, he has written it. But when it comes to Paul talking about what he has written, he only uses this kind of verb to refer to something completed in writing or that he is about to complete. And so I think he wrote the entire letter. And Luther, he translates that phrase not as large letters, but many letters or words, many words. Luther says, It means, see with what many words I am writing with my own hand, indicating that Paul wrote all the the words of the book. Now, what does this matter? Well, if Paul wrote the entire letter, it was uncommon for him. And it would add a personal touch to the letter. It would show his personal care, his personal concern for the Galatians that they turn from their heresy and that they boot those out of the church. They do not put up with those of the circumcision party any longer. In other words, Paul is pulling out all the stops to try and turn erring brothers back to the faith. Even if it means he labors himself to write out the entire letter himself. And I think that's instructive for us. He wasn't half-heartedly appealing to them. He took out every stop. He went to every effort. To appeal to those erring brothers. That is to say, we shouldn't make our final appeal to people half-heartedly, to write them off too early. We pull out all the stops and we do whatever we can to appeal to erring brothers to turn from their ways. 
But regardless of whether Paul wrote the entire letter, a large portion of the letter, or just this final paragraph, he wrote it to put his final touches of care and concern to the Galatians. To put his signature on the letter so that no one could mistake that it was from him. And after signing the letter, he launches into unmasking the first hypocritical motive of the Judaizers who were promoting works-based salvation. And this is sub-point A. That first motive is the desire to look good before men. This is the first motive that promotes gospel deviation. And however innocent it might seem at first, a desire to look good before men always leads to gospel deviation. The phrase in the ESV, let's read verse 12 together. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. That phrase in the ESV, to make a good showing, is just one word in the Greek. It's an actually, actually a very rare verb in all of Greek literature, and this is the only time it's used in Scripture. It's actually the word for face with a prefix for good attached to it. A good face. Try to present a good face before others. And it means to make a pretentious display of religion. To put on a good front. To present a good-looking face to win the favor of men. And for the Judaizers... They wanted the approval of the Pharisees and the unbelieving Jews. In other words, they wanted to be accepted by the culture that they were saved out of. And there are a lot of avenues that we could compromise as a church to make a good showing to the world that we were saved out of. There are a lot of ways today that so-called Christians are virtue signaling, trying to make a good showing before the world. Many so-called Christians have acquiesced to the LGBTQ movement. They've made statements to try and save their reputation in the eyes of the world. One such example of this, CNN reports that after 37 years, the Christian ministry of Exodus International, which was, to help design, which was designed to help Christians who struggled with same-sex attraction, after 37 years, they're shutting down, but not before issuing a public apology for all of the hurt that they caused the LGBTQ community. One of the board members said, and I quote, We're not negating the ways God used Exodus, a reference to their ministry, to positively affect thousands of people. But a new generation of Christians is looking for change, and they want to be heard. In other words, they are saying we have to appeal to this new generation who don't accept the idea of submitting their entire life to Christ. They had to change to look good to a new generation that is a new generation of Christians who are more accepting of the LGBTQ agenda. Except this wasn't a recent article. This is actually an article from 2013. And since then... It's just been a domino effect. There's been much more pressure put on Christians to get on board and raise the pride flag. 
Many of you, I know you know this instant, but a more recent high-profile example of this is Max Lucado, who issued an apology for a sermon he preached from a biblical view of marriage. And in his apology, he tried to save face to look good before the LGBTQ community by saying, faithful people, he's inferring faithful Christians, faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says regarding homosexuality. But we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. I seem to recall a proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's simply not true. But he goes on and he says, to be clear, I believe in the traditional biblical understanding of marriage, but I also believe in a God of unbounded grace and love. He was trying to save face. He was under a lot of attack because of a message he had preached years and years ago. But he was trying to hold on in this letter. He's trying to hold on to the truths of Scripture while at the same time tell the LGBTQ community that they can have it their way too. Max's desire to look good before men was the same motive that caused the Galatian Christians to forsake the gospel. And Max is very close if he isn't there yet. He needs to care more about how God sees him than how the world sees him. One more example before we close the circle a little bit to press things home. When it comes to the more recent social justice pressures in society, there have been many evangelical leaders who have tried to do the same thing. There's some faithful Men, historically, that I have looked up to, they're trying to stand on both sides of the fence because they don't want to, by their own admission, they don't want to lose their young people. This social justice movement, it's a the cultural issue of the day that many are not convinced of its anti-gospel roots yet. Just like the early church struggled to come to grips with the falsehood of the circumcision party, So evangelicalism is struggling to come to grips with the heretical nature of the social justice movement. But make no mistake, they are preaching another gospel. Thabiti Anabule, who was uh, once a, a man that I looked up to, listened to, learned from, a once faithful pastor, he's now a leading voice in the social justice movement. Uh, Phil Johnson was once interacting with him on Twitter over the gospel. The gospel that the BD was preaching versus what Phil believed the true gospel was. And they were going back and forth. And Thabiti responded to Phil in one tweet. And he said, and I quote, Oh, now I see the problem. You don't understand the gospel. He told this to Phil Johnson, who's been faithfully preaching the gospel for decades. Why would he say such a thing to him? to a man who's been faithfully preaching the gospel for decades. It's because Thabiti now preaches a different gospel. And Phil doesn't agree with it, so he levels the accusation that Phil doesn't understand the gospel. But in reality, it's Thabiti who has changed. And he has since admitted that he's preaching a different gospel from Phil. Well, I can attest, Phil preaches a faithful gospel. It's Thabiti who has departed. 
But we have to recognize this movement for what it is. It is a false gospel. We have to recognize that just like the early church had to recognize the circumcision party was preaching another gospel. And we have to make sure that we don't have the desire to look good in their eyes. We have to make sure we don't affirm what they are doing in any way. We can't say, well, that's great for you, but not for me. That's one way you can, you know, put the gospel into action. They're being deceived into another gospel of works. The gospel of works of never-ending reparations to make up for past sins. And if we have family and friends who've bought into this, we have to make sure that we have no desire to try to look good in their eyes. To gain their approval or their favor. Many people in the culture are buying into it. Listen, don't even like their Facebook posts. That's just another way to affirm them in what they're believing. If we have such a desire to look good in their eyes, that's going to lead to gospel deviation. We must repent and put off any such desire to gain the approval of men. The second motivation, it is similar, but it is distinguished. The second motivation that will lead to gospel deviation is the desire to escape persecution. Look there at verse 12 again, the second half of it. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, if I took a poll of the room, I am certain that almost everyone in here would raise their hand if I asked you if you want to go through persecution. Paul is not saying here that you have to want to go through persecution. Rather, he is saying the desire to escape it can lead to gospel deviation. And this desire to escape persecution, if it's not put to death, will quickly lead to gospel compromise. Just look a couple pages back at the Apostle Peter. This is what caused the Apostle Peter to deviate, to stumble and fall. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? But it's that little phrase right there, he himself fearing the circumcision party. Fear of man, fear of what those Judaizers might do to him, Peter compromised and he gave in to the social pressures and he withdrew from the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. To illustrate this a little bit, how many of you, during the time here when most people were uh, wearing masks during the pandemic, whether you thought it was right or not, 
you wore a mask because you were afraid of what some crazy person might do if you walked into King Supers or whatever it might be. Whether you believed it right or not, you wore a mask because you were fearful of what might happen if you did wear a mask. Or if you didn't wear a mask. If you didn't think it was right to wear a mask, but you wore it out of fear of persecution for mask's sake, that was a situation that revealed a weakness in you. For if your fear of persecution over masks defined your or dictated your actions and caused you to compromise, you ought to especially be on guard concerning gospel compromise for escaping persecution. And I'm not saying that there is a one-to-one correlation. That if you compromised on masks, you'll surely compromise on the gospel. I'm just saying that if you did it out of fear, be on guard against that sin. For it can lead to gospel compromise. So unless you are stronger than the Apostle Peter, you need to put to death the desire to escape persecution, to escape persecution. You need to put to death the desire or even the fear of man in your heart. We too often think back to the words of Jesus and we just don't think they really apply to us. The words of Jesus in John 15, 18 to 20, where Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And we just somehow think that we have the key to remaining faithful to the gospel while not being hated by the world. We think that we have come up with a way to live to escape persecution while still remaining faithful. And for many of us, the desire to escape persecution has just been the result of us remaining quiet, maybe not faithful to preach the gospel at every opportunity. And many of us, we just think that we have mastered this living in two worlds thing without being persecuted. When in reality, we've been compromised without realizing it. By remaining quiet on the gospel or even remaining quiet on social issues with gospel implications like abortion, gay marriage, and social justice, we've compromised by just being quiet. Just give in to some of these social norms or remain quiet for now and you'll avoid persecution. But that is a lie from Satan. Silence often assumes acceptance. Timothy George, he says of this passage, by insisting on the circumcision of Gentile believers, the Judaizers could cast themselves in a favorable light with the local synagogue authorities. They were simply recruiting more Jewish proselytes for the nation of Israel, thereby mitigating, to some extent at least, the scandal of the cross with its particularistic emphasis on the salvation through Jesus Christ alone. 
Silence often assumes acceptance. And therefore, silence pushes other people into their camp. And that is why there's been such a departure from evangelicalism in the last decade. And even the last decades, that quiet compromise by Christians has created a whole host of proselytes to the culture. We have to be faithful to proclaim the scandal of the cross with all its impropriety to the culture. We have to demand repentance from sin. Sexual immorality in the LGBTQ LGBTQ movement, the covetous greed and hate in the woke gospel, we have to proclaim that salvation is by Christ alone. And being quiet to slip under the radar is compromising the gospel. The gospel is designed to be a light on a hill, even if it's a light that gets egged or gets rocks thrown at it out of hatred. It is to be set up as a light on the hill. So that those who are called by the Lord can see it and go to it. So if we want to remain true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not deviate from it, we have to put to death in us the desire to look good before men and any desire to escape persecution. And the third desire that leads to gospel deviation that Paul points out in these Judaizers is the desire to boast in the flesh. The desire to boast in the flesh. Look at Galatians 6.13 with me. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul, he unmasks the legalists here and he tells the Galatians that their promotion of circumcision is all a scheme. They don't really care about keeping the law. They don't really think that this is going to save you, Paul says. They just want to boast in your flesh. And Moises Silva explains this passage this way, and I quote, In spite of their claims, their obedience to the law is at best selective. Their true purpose is to boast in the fact that they have placed a mark on the flesh of the Galatian Christians. End quote. And another commentator says, And I quote, the legalists were not really interested in keeping the law. What they wanted was an easy way to obtain converts so that they could boast of a long list of followers. Their motive was, look at who we converted. And they could point to an outward action that they could boast in. And the desire to boast in any individual outward action as proof of faith, is a desire that will lead to gospel deviation. Anything you want to see outwardly in someone that they have done and boast in that, that is a desire that will lead to gospel deviation. The common one in evangelicalism today is getting someone to pray a prayer and then telling everybody, tallying all of those and boasting in the numbers. Or even baptisms. The Southern Baptist denomination requires all their churches to report baptism numbers every year. And a desire to boast in numbers will lead to gospel deviation. And this has led some churches in the Southern Baptist denomination to put on emotional services 
where they press people to make decisions and get baptized that very service so they can report large numbers to the SBC. They even have experts who tell them how to draw on people's emotions, how to get them to up out of their seats to come forward. It's all manipulation. But that desire for increase, for numbers, for numbers' sake, to count the flesh, this is a desire that will lead to gospel deviation. And so any desire that we want to see to point for someone's outward act of faith to boast in, we have to guard against that. We have to put that desire to death. So Paul, he unmasked the legalists. He explained that they just desired to look good before men, to avoid persecution for the sake of the cross. And they didn't really care about the law. They just wanted to count people's flesh boast of their own followers. These all contributed to the deviation from the true gospel. And we have to take heed that we do not have the same desires within our hearts. And Paul goes on from here and he tells them what they should boast in or what they should put on as they put off these desires that will lead to gospel deviation. Paul tells them to put on, and this is point number two, humble boasts that embolden gospel faithfulness. Humble boasts that embolden gospel faithfulness. Look at Galatians 6, 14-15. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says, boasting in these two things will aid in keeping you faithful to the gospel. We have two sub points in here as well. The things that we are to boast in is the centrality of the cross, boasting in the cross alone, and in the power of the new creation in verse 15. The centrality of the cross of Christ. Boasting only in the cross keeps us from deviating from the gospel. That is, preaching the cross and all of the implications of it on our lives. One commentator says, the Latin word crux for cross was regarded as an expression so crude that no polite Roman would ever utter it in public. In order to get around this difficulty, the Romans devised a euphemistic circumlocution. They came up with the term, hang him on the unlucky tree. But what the world regards as too shameful to whisper in polite company, a detestable object used for brutal execution of the dregs of society, Paul declared to be the proper basis for exaltation. In this and this alone, he would make his boast in life and death for all time and eternity. End quote. To boast in the cross of Christ is to lift high Such a shameful thing to the world. Something that the world will laugh at. Mock and scorn. And yet Paul says, lift this up high. If we're willing to lift the cross of Christ high and be looked at as fools in the world, well then what else are we going to fear? To boast in the cross of Christ is to lift high its demands. This should be the aim of our life. To boast in Christ and the cross, not minimize its implications. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record in their Gospels Jesus' words about the demands of the cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To preach and boast in the cross is to lift high its implications of self-denial. That is a message our world does not want to hear. Our world says it's all about you. The only person you have to bow to is yourself. And if you do bow to someone else, you're being unfaithful to yourself. Christ says you must die to yourself and all of your desires to follow him. Keeping the cross central in our minds will keep it central to the gospel message that we preach. If we are living every day in light of the cross, denying self, does it matter if what men think? We're going to care what they think of Christ, yes. But if we're dying to self, we will not care what the world thinks of us. If the cross is central, those things may come to our mind. What if, what if, what if? But if we keep the cross central and remember what our Lord did for us, we will remain resolved to be faithful. For what human will ever do more for you than Christ? Proclaiming the cross keeps us fixed on that. And Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, he said, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In exhorting the Colossians to walk in Christ, he reminded them of what God had done, nailing their debt of sin to the cross. When we remember what Christ has done for us, when we remember the demands of the cross, we keep those in the forefront of our mind. It's going to strengthen our resolve to preach a true gospel. The world and its desires, they've been crucified to Paul, they've been crucified to us. The world and its pleasures are dead to us and we to the world. One commentator, he put it this way, on that cross, the world died to Paul and Paul to the world. When a man is saved, the world says goodbye to him and he says goodbye to the world. He is spoiled as far as the world is concerned because he is no longer interested in its fleeting pleasures. The world has lost its attraction for us. We should have no desire for worldly things. And if we have no desire for worldly things, we'll not be tempted to compromise. Especially not to gain worldly acclaim. So boasting in the cross of Christ alone emboldens gospel fidelity. It keeps us faithful. But the second boast that emboldens gospel fidelity or faithfulness is in God's power of the new creation. The power of the new creation. That's the last half of verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul told the Galatians that neither physical circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but the new creation. He told the Colossians something similar to keep them from legalism. In Colossians 2, 8-13, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul told the Colossians that the the circumcision that counted was the one made without hands, the one that made them alive spiritually. That is the new birth. God's regenerating power in us. And Paul says, if you are going to boast in something, boast in the regenerating power of the Spirit, which you have no power to bring about. Boast in that which you can take absolutely no credit for. Rather than boasting in getting people to do certain things, boast in that which you can take no credit for, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Boast or rejoice in God's grace that makes dead sinners alive. Not a bunch of outward actions that conform to what you think should be. So Paul, he exhorted the Galatians to boast in the cross alone with all of its implications and the regenerating power of God that we have no control over. Keeping those two things central in our minds, the cross of Christ, the fact that we don't have any power over Someone's salvation, those are going to keep us faithful to the true gospel. We can't keep those two things central in our thinking, central in our minds, central in our lives, and lose sight of the true gospel. So put off all the desires to please men, to fear men, fear persecution, to boast in anyone's flesh. Put on boasting in Christ and the power of God. And then finally, Paul offers a kind of blessing in prayer for those who follow this rule. This is point number three. Peaceful fruit that envelops gospel obedience. Peaceful fruit that envelops gospel obedience. Look at verse 16. And for all those who walk by this rule, putting those desires off and putting on boasting in the cross of Christ, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. One commentator says, Here we find no large-hearted, greet all the saints in Jesus Christ, as we have at the conclusion of Philippians. Nor are there any holy kisses to be passed around on the order of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians and the Thessalonians. This is a formal and restricted benediction, sincerely meant, no doubt, but clearly targeted to a specific group, those who follow Paul's rule. This rule clearly refers to what he just said regarding boasting in the cross, the new creation, which no doubt he also has in mind what he said about walking in the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 25. He used the same word. Chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step. That word for keep in step There is the same as those who walk 
by this rule. This blessing of peace pronounced by Paul on all who follow this rule, it stands in marked contrast to the curse that he invoked upon the Judaizers in chapter 1. He begins cursing them and he ends with, cur- he ends with blessing those who follow this rule. All who continue to hold to the false gospel are cursed. But those who hold to the true gospel are blessed with peace. This benediction of peace, it wasn't just an empty salutation or stylistic device of Paul. This expresses Paul's true heart for the Galatians toward the true believers. And this word for peace, it has a lot of theological baggage or theological import, which the Jews would have understood. Peace can mean the opposite of war, but more often it is a state of well-being. It was referred to as wholeness, health, and prosperity. It is a word that is like a train with a whole lot of freight on it that we don't have time to unpack entirely this morning, but I want to touch on it. Take your Bibles and go all the way back to Numbers. All the way back to Numbers. The Greek word for peace was a word often used to translate the Hebrew shalom. And just as we talk about just a brief overview of what Paul was getting at as he was blessing them, praying this blessing upon them. Let's read Numbers 6, 24 to 26. This is the uh, passage of Scripture you're all familiar with, the Aaronic blessing. Numbers 6, 24 to 26. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This word for peace at the end is placed at the end because it's the result of all of those other things in that list. That is to say, as God keeps you and makes His face to shine upon you, as He is gracious to you and lifts His countenance up to you, you will be at peace. You will have peace. It goes from that order, from cause to effect. Thus, this word for shalom or peace, it describes the experience of the person who fully enjoys the presence of Yahweh as he is guarded and blessed and treated graciously by him. It is a peace that gives full completion to a man. He's totally content and complete with a perfect life in his Lord which transcends anything else that men could accomplish on their own. He is perfectly complete as he resides in the presence with his gracious, the gracious countenance of God. He's perfectly complete as he resides in the presence of the God of the universe. Such a one is untouchable by Satan, sickness, and sin, ultimately, He is complete and he enjoys the perfect presence of Yahweh. And while this peace is not fully realized here on this earth, it will be fully realized as we dwell eternally with our Lord in heaven, in perfect peace and communion with Him. And Paul wants them to experience as much of this peace as possible in this life by remaining faithful to the gospel. And to the extent that we can enjoy it here, 
We hope in its perfect reality and in the future. We walk in obedience to the gospel. And as a result, we will have the greatest level of peace because we are pleasing God and in good standing with Him. And this peace is actually what the world is looking for in every other sin they commit, every other thing they give themselves to. This is what they're looking for. The sense of wholeness that they seek in their sin. The comfort that they take in their selfish desires. This is what they're seeking. And Paul says, if you want this, it's gospel faithfulness that leads to this, not giving in to the world. So Paul was wishing them an obedience that would be blessed with a sense of well-being, health, and prosperity spiritually that would one day be perfectly physically realized as well. But he also wanted to exclude some from this blessing. Look at the latter half of 16, or I'll just read 16 again. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There's a great theological discussion here that we don't have time to get into, and that is whether Paul is addressing two different groups or referring to the same group twice. That is to say, are those who walk by this rule and the Israel of God, is Paul referring to the same group or two different groups? And that's the the theological debate there. And I can see both sides, but that theological debate is not Paul's point in this passage. And so we're not going to talk about it this morning. Paul's point here is not to draw continuity or discontinuity between the church and Israel. Rather, Paul's emphatic point here is to exclude a specific group from this blessing. Paul's point here is that the Judaizers, the ones saying you have to be circumcised to be saved, they are not the Israel of God. They may be physical children of Abraham, but they are not true Israel. They are not the true children of Abraham in the faith. And so this is one final blow to the Judaizers, reminding them that they are not included in the blessing of shalom, of peace, but they are accursed by God for forsaking the true gospel. But those who walk according to the Spirit they receive the blessing of peace. And Paul, he then moves on to tell them that the debate is over. Verse 17, he says, For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul is essentially saying the debate is over. Don't bother me anymore with this debate. And what seems to be a final declaration to the Gentiles, that he is Christ's in contrast to the legalists. Paul is contrasting himself with the selfish desires of the Pharisees who were trying to avoid persecution. He was reminding them of his scars that he had because he preached the gospel to them first. It was there in Galatia that he was stoned. And he's reminding them, who do you think is the true gospel preacher? Someone who wants to save their own skin Or someone willing to die to preach the message to you. Paul is saying, remember my scars. Did I have selfish motives in preaching the gospel to you? Was I looking out for myself or was I looking out for your best interests in preaching the cross of Christ? And most certainly the answer to those questions is that Paul 
unquestionably sacrificed his life for the sake of the Galatians. And he's reminding them of that here. Who are you going to listen to? In total opposition to those who wanted to save their own skin. And Paul ends the letter with a very typical blessing. Already having excluded those who are under a curse, he tells them, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. It's a very typical closing to Paul's letter, but one notable difference is that the word brothers is emphatically placed at the end. One commentator notes, and I quote, this one word softens the severity of the whole letter by stressing Paul's confidence. He calls them brothers at the end, trusting that they will respond as brothers. And so, beloved, let us respond to Paul's words here as we should. To put off any desire to look good in the eyes of the world. Put off any desire to escape persecution Put off any desire to boast in the flesh. And let us put on a renewed focus on the gospel, the cross, and its implications on our lives. That we are saved not because of anything that we have done, but because the Spirit has regenerated us. And beloved, let us walk in obedience to this rule. And we will receive the peace that surpasses understanding that the world so desperately wants. We have access to this peace if we walk in step with the Spirit and remain faithful to the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know so many churches drift into error. You wrote to the churches in in the book of Revelation. You wrote to churches who had deviated from the true gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would put to death in us any desire to look good before men, any desire to escape persecution, any desire to boast in anyone's flesh. Lord, help us put those things to death in our individual hearts, in our church. Lord, forgive us for, for I know myself, I fear man. I need to keep my eyes fixed on you, and I know I am not alone in that temptation. So, Lord, please forgive us. And help us keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, fearing you above all things, boasting in the cross of Christ, no matter how foolish it looks to the world. Lord, we beg of you that you keep us faithful. It is only by your power that we will be kept faithful. And Lord, give us this peace that you have promised, as we are faithful. Though we may go through trial and tribulation in this world, Give us the peace that surpasses understanding that all of this will be made right one day. In Jesus' name, amen.